From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coons. Hi, everybody. It's Connie Kuntz, and you're listening to Season 1, Episode 5 of the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. I have a confession to make. I made a mistake. I thought there were four Mondays in January. Turns out there are five. So we've invited Mr. Dan Klefstad back into the Shumway studio to record another new story. Hi, Dan. Hello, Connie. And yes, I actually just wrote this story in a panic when you <laughs> needed a fifth one. And I was happy with it. So I'm really glad to to, to read this one. We're giving it the title Hubstrumfuhrer Soren. And it takes place on a Russian battlefield in World War II. And in the story, we're going to get a little backstory about Fiona, Soren Valenius, and we might meet a couple other bad guys. Yeah, a couple other bad dudes, yeah. Along the way. Well, with no further ado, let's hear it. Now, normally, this is where Connie would say, this is a podcast for adults. Please be aware, this is a podcast for adults. Connie, did I get that right? Yes, it's for adults. And here we go. Russians knew they had no chance. We surrounded them. They also knew we'd have no mercy, but they surrendered anyway. They gave up their weapons and helmets, hoping for cigarettes, which we no longer had. Were they buying time? Somewhere across the drifting snow, their swine kin prepared another attack, but we didn't know when or how many. So we tried beating the details out, smashing their fingers and noses with rifles. After burning precious calories, we huddled in our so-called winter outfits and stamped our feet to get the blood moving. Then we tried to strip their coats, which covered neck to ankle with thick, coarse wool. I know very little Russian, but it was clear we'd have to shoot them first. So... I ordered my last surviving officer to line them up and empty our German guns on them. The captured ones work better when frozen, and we'd need those for the next assault. A corporal limps toward me and salutes. Herr Hauptsturmführer, shall we aim for the head? Their coats would be intact then. If you want pig brains on your collar, that's your business. I yank the magazine from my pistol and count the remaining ice-covered rounds. I'll take the three on the right. Up to now, I thought Der Fuhrer might introduce a super weapon that would stop the Red Army from entering Germany. But when half our guns failed to perform a simple mass execution, I knew it was over. The war would go on for another 15 months, but this moment in Estonia is where the end began. For Germany and these mongrel fucks who surrendered everything but their coats. At least their weapons worked. My men were thrilled. I, however, counted every one of the eleven bullets they spent. Hauptsturmführer Felenius! Major Haas motions from a staff car that must have arrived while we were firing. 
I walk quickly and salute, expecting a reprimand for wasting ammunition. Haas ignores the bodies. I'm going to Talon to prepare defenses there. Need I remind you of Der Fuhrer's directive? Stand and fight. No retreat. No surrender. His driver, a lieutenant, salutes. We know you'll give your all for the fatherland. I ignore him. Can you send some food, cigarettes, bandages, anything? I'll assess the situation and let you know. Haas motions to his driver, who shifts into first. Don't let us down, Soren. His use of my Christian name is another sign that the thousand-year Reich will last little more than a decade. I salute once more as he drives toward the final sunset I expect to see. I try to savor it, but someone yells, Deckung! And I jump into the nearest trench. I've seen men hallucinate before they die, so I'm not surprised by the woman wearing a low-cut peasant-style dress. This moonlit vision is a lovely distraction from the gurgling in my throat and lungs. A sucking chest wound gets priority in any triage, but there's no one left to plug the holes. I'll suffocate in a few minutes, so I try to enjoy this little film about an underdressed beauty walking toward me through white and crimson snow. You don't look Russian, I wheeze. Estonian? She gathers the long fabric as she kneels, and I see blue veins in her large white breasts. Then I see nails shaped like shell splinters descending toward me and wonder if she'll gouge my eyes out. I close them as she brushes aside a stray forelock. My eyes reopen. Please, just stay with me. What a pity. You look like an angel. She speaks in English. Now she's fingering a pin on my uniform. S.S. Nordland. She frowns and grabs a handful of hair, lifting my face toward hers. I could have used those prisoners you killed. I focus on her accent, which is different from that of my language tutor in Copenhagen. American? Her grip tightens. You wasted them. Wasted? What did that mean? This was more than a war. It was a crusade against Slavs and other subhumans and Jewish Bolshevism, a crusade I joined four years ago to help the Nazis take over my native Denmark. The fact that the Aryans failed means nothing matters anymore. Nichts! Nearly defeated, I spend one of my remaining breaths on a question. What do you want? What do you want? Soren. Definitely a dream. Even my dog tags use an initial for my first name. But I consider her words. Leave the war? Leave this fucking continent? Her eyes narrow as if preparing to divulge a secret. I'm going to America.
Take me with you. Her fist tightens against my skull. Her eyes glow red, and her mouth opens to reveal two fangs that curve inward. You're a monster, she hisses. You don't deserve to join me. Only a true predator does. I... Who... What are you? Her mouth closes, but her glowing eyes remain fixed on me. I've only read about creatures like her or seen them in movies. Something tells me this isn't a hallucination. Vampire? She scowls. For a moment, she appears uncertain about what to do. Finally, you're useless now, nearly bloodless, but I can change you. Her face is so close, our noses almost touch. First, I'm going to give you something I never had. A choice. Make me one of you. You haven't heard the terms. I don't want to die. If I save you, the sun will be your mortal enemy, and your thirst will never end. Please, I cough a final time as my lungs collapse. Both her hands support my neck as she moves behind me. Then she rests my head in her lap and holds her right hand above my face. A nail slices her wrist and my head instinctively turns as blood rains down. Open. Her fingers squeeze my jaw. The drops cover my face as I struggle for my last breath. Be still. When I awake, I hear a heart beating and know immediately who it belongs to. I sit up and hear his panicked breathing, but pause to take in the surroundings of a command bunker I visited once, now abandoned. Fiona relaxes in the field marshal's former wing chair, sipping from a glass of red liquid that I already know. I can smell it. And I want it. You could relax, Fiona swallows. It's safe here. Safe for whom? He yells from across the room. Hauptsturmfuhrer Felenius, untie me and arrest this woman. Sturmbahnfuhrer Haas, I rise, noting the major's civilian clothes. Where did you go after you left our position? To Talon, like I told you. He's lying. Fiona examines her nails. I found him at the Loxa shipyard, arranging passage to neutral territory. He and his lieutenant, who's delicious, by the way, had Swedish passports. I glare at him, sitting in a wooden chair, arms and legs bound. Stand and fight, you said. Then I see the passports on a nearby table, plus a dozen gold coins, My men were killed, all of them, covering your rear. Oh, I think Lieutenant Bauman covered his rear just fine, wouldn't you say, Major? Fiona smiles as she takes another sip. Soren, listen! Haas fixes his eyes on me. She kidnapped us in Talon, planted that stuff on us, and killed Fritzi. Don't call me Soren. I do not consort with cowards. 
Haas's face wrinkles with disgust as he looks at Fiona. Then, like an animal, she bit his neck and drank his blood. I inhale deeply, suddenly aware that my teeth are longer. Haas's skin reveals a spider web of throbbing vessels, but I know which one to attack first. I glance at Fiona. Can I take him now? Fiona looks amused as she leans back in the field marshal's chair. Permission granted, Hauptsturmfuhrer. The Stockholm Palace looks stunning at night. Yellow lights reflecting off the sandstone exterior. But the fact that a king lives there, plus the surrounding architecture, music, and fashions, reminds me that we're still in Europe. I look at Fiona's hands, which rest on the wrought iron balcony, and place my right on her left. I hear the war will be over soon. Yes. It should be safe to travel, no? It's never safe. She looks at me. The first leg to England is a small risk. We could take two or three passengers, but we'd have to share them. The second leg, though, she looks at the night sky. That would be seven or eight, again shared, so we'd still be starving. If we're alive when we get to New York, the police will know something's wrong and board the ship. All they need is a little luck, and they'll find our trunk. Why not have separate trunks? That doubles the chances they'll find one. If they discover you or me, they'll keep looking. Remind me, why are we doing this? She points west, because that's where we'll get dinner every night. She waves toward the city. They just had two devastating wars, and God knows if the Russians are finished marching. There aren't enough people to hide behind while we make the others disappear. I gaze at the rising moon and imagine how it looks from New York, Boston, or Chicago. Then I lift my glass. To America, may we thrive among her teeming multitudes. To whoever controls the universe... Fiona raises hers. May she still need us enough to grant safe passage. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for sharing that chapter with us. Oh, Connie, it's so exciting. I mean, it's such a brand new story. Yes. And, and the Guild is getting it first, which is like, for me, it's kind of interesting to share this because we've been working so closely together mm-hmm. for the last uh, few weeks. It's been fun to listen to you talk about the ideas for the story, and then you just wrote it so quickly. Over the New Year's holiday. I think oh. I started um, New Year's Eve in the afternoon sometime, and I got it to the where I wanted it uh, by the end of New Year's Day, I think. I sent you a draft, or the first draft, uh, well, it would have been the fifth draft by that time, and I, I remember you, you found a couple of spelling errors that I quickly fixed, mm-hmm. and then we <laughs> said it again. <laughs> um, tell us what it was like to write this, knowing that 
you're probably going to be sharing it in an early draft or early stage. What's it like to share your process with us when everything isn't perfect? Right. So we're in an environment where this 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 podcast here at the Shumway, it's a very creative, kind of very free-flowing atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, for me to bring a story that I just did, I haven't spent a whole lot of time with it. Um, I guess what I'm doing is it's more than testing it out. Mm-hmm. I kind of know that the story is where it needs to be, mm-hmm. except for maybe the title, Hauptstrom Führer Soren. I'm still working on that. But um, this is a safe place where I can kind of birth this story, if you will, and say, here it is, Connie. What do you think? Here it is, Jesse. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's hard for artists to share when they don't know exactly where something is going, but you do it so marvelously. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Why are you so brave? Why are you so willing to put your work out there when you don't know what the end product is going to be? Mm. Yes, sir. Yeah, no, I don't know. Um, I have talked to other creative people, Mm -hmm. people who own a piano and play the piano at home, for example, mm-hmm. uh, but they don't ever perform in public. Uh, other writers, mm-hmm. same thing, who are mm-hmm. very nervous about sharing their work, in, and I don't know why I've been so brave. I've been encouraged from an early age okay. to do that. Well, I want to go to that. Okay, I want to go sure. to your early age. What mm-hmm. kind of performances or recitals did you do when you were a little kid? Um, there were a couple of piano recitals very early in my life, mm-hmm. um, and I don't remember them, but I don't have very good m- memory associations with them. I didn't <laughs> like it. I struggled to read music, so I became a drummer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, There were some drum recitals, and they went kind of pretty good, and I started joining bands and performing with other musicians, mm-hmm. guitar, you know, keyboard, bass, guitar, and I think there was a horn at one point, and a singer. Uh, Performing in a group like that, I think that's where the confidence comes from because we could make mistakes. We were all making mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody would start the song, one, two, three, four, blah, blah, blah. Oh, sorry, I'm, not, I'm out of tune or whatever. Mm-hmm. So everybody's making those mistakes. And that gave me the confidence, I think, to, you know, when I moved on and become, started to become a writer, mm-hmm. a serious writer, I, uh, I, I just felt like, well, what have I got to lose, yeah. you know? Well, I I hope everybody learns from this because I think it's extremely inspirational to work with you in this aspect and be by somebody who is brave. You have to be brave if you're an artist. I agree. But many people are not. And I hope that what you're doing inspires others to be brave. Take a chance. Write. Get it out there. Share it. Be willing to be criticized. Be willing to be praised. I have a thought on this. I'm reminded of the uh, the line from Game of Thrones: "There is no courage without fear." Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what Jon Snow, the character, learns uh, when he's up at the wall with the the guardians or whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly right. I mean, I'm not saying that I'm without fear. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just found a way, mm-hmm. my way, of getting beyond it. And if a writer, you know, somebody listening to this podcast, or somebody a member of the the Rockford Writers Guild is a little hesitant but wants to break out and share their work Mm -hmm. all you have to do is just look at yourself decide how much criticism you are willing to take Mm -hmm. and then put it out there yes you know i really like that um when you were performing with other musicians was it other men did you ever perform with other women? Yeah, that's you an interesting question. Mostly, uh, you know, we were teenage boys and then college-age uh, uh, men. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were women. Uh, there was a, a female singer whose name I forget. She only worked with the band, one of the bands I was in for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, it was mostly men. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, it is actually. Do you miss working with a band or a team like that? Uh, that's right. Because there is a big difference here because when yeah. you're writing, it's mostly solitary. And they're all in your head. And they're all these characters are in my head. And heart. But mm-hmm. I'm the one orchestrating it, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, and deciding what goes on the, the, the word doc. Yes. But with a band, it is a democracy for the most part. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's a combo of, say, four or five guys or gals, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, it is more of a democracy. Do you usually, I was, gonna, I was wondering if you work more comfortably with men, with women, with different ages, does it matter? It doesn't matter. There's a variety in your head. Mm-hmm. Do you notice anything similar about each character that you write? You mean too similar to real people or? Not necessarily. Are the characters, is there something that you make sure each character has of you in them? Oh, um, I, I okay. I think what happens when they're in my head, mm-hmm. and I'm finally going to put them uh, into a story, is they probably they almost certainly have a bit of me in them because mm-hmm. I have to start somewhere. Yes, but very quickly I need to give them something that's different from me, so that they begin to develop on their own. Mm-hmm. And as I'm writing through the drafts, suddenly I realize that these characters really are taking their own life. And in that moment, when the writer is discovering that the character is taking his or her own form, Mm -hmm. what is that? Is that a god miracle happening? Is it a spirit? Is it the muse that you find in the woods? Explain to me the energy that happens in that moment. It's one of my favorite moments. It is. And I'm not sure how to describe what happens, but I can tell you how it feels. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I finally, I'm not a parent. So this is, I'm speaking, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if it's more like the, uh, that of a parent. Okay, they're finally on their own now. I can sit back and just not have to worry too much about mm-hmm. them, you know? They're, they're adults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that liberating? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I can sit back and just watch the show mm-hmm. and not have to spend so much time giving them certain characteristics, struggling to figure out which is which are the appropriate characteristics mm-hmm. for this character. Uh, so, yeah, I think that that's, um, it's, uh, I, I breathe a deep sigh of relief, and mm-hmm. then I just, you know, in, with a sense of wonderment, just watch them go. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I do think it's like being a parent, by the way. I'm sure I'm offending somebody who's a parent out there, because whatever, but I think you are a parent. I do. I suppose. You, you know, can't I... write these characters, these situations, have this knowledge of the background and not be a bit of a daddy about it. I suppose you're right. Um, does that make you uncomfortable to be considered a daddy if you're a writer? Is that a weird thing to say? Uh, no, it's not a weird thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, I, They are my children. I own them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't like them, well... I'm... <laughs> It's not necessarily my fault, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> but at some point, you know, um, oh gosh, who was it? Truman Capote who said, uh, don't blame me for what my characters say or yeah. do, uh, it's, that it's not fair to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, uh, as a parent, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, in this case, they're on their own. I've done what I've done my part mm-hmm. and now they're in the world and you, you have to deal with them. Oh. <laughs> I like dealing with your kids. They're 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 good people, even when they're not. Let's talk about Fiona. I, I think that she's there's not necessarily morality isn't part of the equation with her. Mm-hmm. I guess that's kind of where I'm coming from. Well, I, I definitely her. sense that, and I don't think any of them are just. I am a bad person. I am a good person. I don't think it's that clear with any of them, and I hope it never is. Uh, they're not stock characters. Mm. Um, I guess my question is with. Fiona, who could be Fiona? 
Yeah. In some strange ways. I, I try to think about when I look at Fiona after from a distance after I've, you know, I've, I'm reading a, a draft or whatever that I've that I've that I've put out there. Um, I, I see maybe some characteristics of women I've known in the mm-hmm. past. Um, so yes, I see. She's a composite, mm-hmm. but she's also stuff that I created too, mm-hmm. um, you know, and kind of gave her some initial characteristics and watched her grow on her own. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know how much it, it occurred to me. You could say, gosh, if you put Fiona and how I've described her in the past mm-hmm. to you and maybe put a photo of my mother next to her, you might see some similarity. Okay. Some. Uh, but there are other characters or people I know I understand uh, in real life who could easily fit into that role have you ever considered some of the political icons to be like some of your characters so Haas in the story Major Haas yes mm-hmm. he reminds me of Bo Bergdahl do you see anything like that with him do you make a conscious choice to think of the political events and imbue those characters with certain qualities or is it just me reaching well you're in the ballpark because uh bo bergdahl a a, a u.s army uh well he, he was accused and uh, convicted of deserting his mm-hmm. post deserting his uh, fellow sol- american soldiers in afghanistan i think it was afghanistan mm-hmm. uh so you're right in that it is a, in a military context mm-hmm. and uh, there's loyalty when you're in the military, you are loyal to those you serve with. Mm-hmm. You know, in this in this case, your brother soldiers, because they were in 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 the in the in the, in the book that I'm talking about in in, in the story um, uh, with Soren, his origin story. It's all men, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and so there is a sense when Haas runs away mm-hmm. and tries to escape the the, the war mm-hmm. to neutral territory that that is a a violation of some code. Mm-hmm. You know, between us soldiers, if you will. Yes. You know, but uh, so that you're you're not too far off. I, and it I don't is. think there's a wrong answer when you interpret. You know, when you make an association with reading any. You well, know, I any have of to ask: stories. Is it a little annoying to have this unfold like this? Oh, well, this one reminds me of Bo Bergdahl, or uh, the last chapter. Wolfie reminds me of Edward Snowden, and I keep making these leaps. Is it annoying to be mid-process and have somebody make these leaps? No. Really? Um, well, here's why. I, I think I, I can't control what other people think. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to. Um, and so I have, you know, when I put a piece of work out there with characters who are very distinct, other people are going to have their interpretations. Mm-hmm. And I, as an artist, I've got to live with that. Mm-hmm. I can't, you know, impose a vision on you. No, this story is about this. You <laughs> know, and get upset. Was... You know, you've just completely misinterpreted me. I like to work yeah. that way too, but I was, yeah. I was worried. I worry. It's what I do. Mm-hmm. I was worried that maybe this would impede your process, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping it enhances it. And would you be willing to talk about what something like this does for you? Well, it just opens up my mind mm-hmm. into what readers are thinking. Okay, and the range of associations that mm-hmm. e- that readers individual readers can have mm-hmm. um, you know you imagine Bo Bergdahl um, you know another reader might think of something completely different mm-hmm. like, I don't know a Roman centurion or something. I don't know but the, <laughs> yeah. but the point is that's interesting to me because then I can look and say oh wow there is a wide range of interpretation do I worry about death do I think well this character I really need to like 
give this character more details that are concrete, so mm-hmm. there could be. I haven't really come up to that point yet, okay. and ever you know decided that or even thought of that. Okay. Uh, so yeah, I'm just I'm very curious at this stage mm-hmm. to hear what readers are thinking and the associations they're making. Yeah, me too. Uh, why the Russian war front? Why did you choose this to give us the backstory mm-hmm. of Soren and Fiona? I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, I wanted to give Soren an origin story. I also want to give Fiona an origin story, but it's mm-hmm. going to be harder. Okay. So I'm going to start, you know, baby steps. Mm-hmm. Start with Soren, who I think is a somewhat simpler character. Okay. I needed to give Soren some sort of backstory and my association. My, I'm, I'm making my own associations yes. as, a, as a, an author. I thought of him. What would it be like if he was a really, really awful person, a Nazi? Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who not just an ordinary Nazi but a Danish Nazi Mm -hmm. who invited the Nazis Mm -hmm. (laughs) to debate his country, uh, as we get a hint of that in the story. Mm -hmm. Um, And also, you know, just somebody who... who has such a a sense of superiority, racial, if you will, and ideological superiority, Mm -hmm. that he thinks that everybody else who out there who doesn't think or look like him Mm -hmm. deserves to die. And that's how he treats those Russian prisoners. Mm -hmm. Um, So he has... And by the way, if you read the history of World War II, mm-hmm. especially the, the you know the, the Nazi the history of Nazi Germany, that's how they felt. Mm-hmm. That's how they perceived the world. And so I wanted to give him something really, you know, this this awful kind of ideology and sense of superiority, and then see what happens when he's mortally wounded and meets Fiona. Mm-hmm. And how, go ahead. Oh yeah, I got to ask you: Have you ever hallucinated? You know, he says, "I know it's common to see." hallucinations when you're dying. So I'm mm-hmm. not surprised I'm seeing this vision. Mm-hmm. Have you ever experienced something like that? Have you been in an accident where you thought you might die? You hallucinate something's coming for you? A uh, little bit of experiment, uh, experimentation with hallucinatory drugs. Oh, uh, sure. Yeah, but that was back in, you know, years and years and years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but dreams certainly yes. are a hallucination. And I, and I do, when I wake up, I, I try to write them down if they're if they are particularly compelling, mm-hmm. and say, "Gosh, what does that mean? Can I use this?" Mm-hmm. You know. So does that does that answer it, your it question? It does. And yeah. about the dreaming, like, do you wake up kind of panicked ever from a dream, or do you mostly have storytelling dreams? Uh, some, they're storytelling dreams, a mm-hmm. lot of them. Mm-hmm. But yes, sometimes I feel like I'm running away from something. We've all had those. You're running away from the monster who's coming to get you. You, you haven't. I don't. These. I don't dream like that. Whoa. I dream very realistically. Okay. So, yeah. No. So, uh, but I'm not trying to say no. That doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, my husband dreams like that too. Yeah. With um, dinosaurs. You know, the dinosaurs are coming to get but, me. But fantastic events are happening around him, <laughs> yeah, and they're pretty yeah. cataclysmic. Mm. Mine are, I had a dream last night that I got in a car, and I was in Freeport, and I was going to an art show, and I saw somebody I hadn't seen in 25 years. And I said, hi, Scott, nice to see you again. And I woke up, and then when I went on Facebook this morning, it was his birthday. No kidding. So that's the kind of dream I have. You have premoni- just, almost like a premonition dream. Almost like a little, but I've never thought, oh, somebody's going to die. Somebody's in trouble. I don't have that kind of thing. I might know that somebody's birthday's coming up. I see where you're going. I um, I read uh, and watch a lot of horror, mm-hmm. you know. So, uh, and over my 50 years, I've seen quite a lot of that stuff. So sometimes, sometimes those monsters are still in my head mm-hmm. and they come out in dreams and they freak me out. And so I wake up panicked. Wow. Uh, like, you know, but yeah, that's, it doesn't happen every night. Has anybody ever come for you to give you a, a happy message in a dream? 
I suppose so, but you know, happiness is the blank pages of history. Um, nobody remembers it, and I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> I tend to not to remember the happy dreams. You know, um, is there anything that you'd like to tell us that you haven't told us yet in this interview? I'm trying to think, um, this interview and this reading wasn't supposed to happen. Remember, right, I do. we were going to do four stories, mm-hmm. uh, one each Monday in January, yes. and then you looked at the calendar mm-hmm. and reminded me that there is a fifth Monday in January. Yeah, I basically begged you to come back. Well, as I was, I was having such a great time yeah, uh, for the first four, so I thought, mm-hmm. well, I'll write the story. And, and, and we'll, we'll air this one out and see if, it's, uh, if it works. Oh, it definitely does. And you know what's really cool? We began with a full moon yes. on January 1st. Oh, yes. And we're, gonna, we're ending with another full, full moon, moon in yeah. January. Super moons, yes. I don't know. It's got to be significant somehow. It is. It is. Uh, before we sign off, do you have a favorite of the five chapters that you've read thus far? I love them all. Mm-hmm. But there's one that I let you read that's going to come out in a couple of years, a year and a half from now. Uh, The Dead of Venice, which I love. I guess what it's time to do is time to say, how are you? One last time. I'm great. Thank you so much for coming back. Well, thank you for inviting me back. And, you know, five podcasts, uh, this is is a lot of fun, and I'm I'm just so glad to be a part of this process. Well, please don't be a stranger. Thank you so much for sharing your January with us. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here, and I look forward to seeing you again sometime. Okay, Mr. Clefstad, play us out. One, two, three, four... Hauptsturmführer Soren is forthcoming in the 2018 winter-spring edition of the Rockford Review. You're listening to music from The Inevitable, which was digitized from a cassette for this podcast. Guilty Pleasures was made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, The Shumway, Rockford Area Arts Council, Freeman AV, and you, our listeners. Remember to let us know what you think of Guilty Pleasures by rating us on iTunes, emailing editor at rockfordwritersguild.org, or joining us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Rockford Writers Guild. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Guilty Pleasures. This is your producer, Jesse Coots. Thank you for listening. Now go write. Write.